0: This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church.
1: So we're just gonna watch this for a couple of minutes and then we'll get up and have a bit more of a chat. If you were
0: a praying mantis, It would be socially acceptable to devour your mate.
2: And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others.
0: Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them.
2: And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice.
0: So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life.
2: Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for
0: the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged, and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked."
2: Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it is what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them.
0: The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways.
2: Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others.
0: This is a radical way of life and it's not
2: always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems this is what jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself it's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet micah god has told you humans what is good and what the lord requires of you is to do justice to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god
1: Cool, um, feel free to go back and watch that later if you want. It's just on YouTube, just a super helpful kind of framing um, and understanding of when we kind of use these words of justice, righteousness, uh, all these sorts of things. What do we actually mean by them? What does the Bible actually say? Um, and we're going to continue on in that kind of conversation. So if you will, cast your mind a little bit back with me to a time probably about 2,500 years ago, so about 500 BC. Um, God's people, the Israelites, the um, are kind of in a bit of a weird, weird time. Um, in the, they're, they're possibly uh, in a situation called the exile, which is where they've kind of been taken out of their land, uh, which God had promised to them. A lot of their kind of um, structures, a lot of their ways of doing things, their ways of worship, their, their just, just everything that felt normal had been stripped away from them, in many ways as a punishment because of that wickedness that was going on. But equally, there's, there's kind of these moments where they're starting to see the glimpses of hope. They're starting to see kind of these, these moments where, where maybe just maybe God is starting to restore things, where things are opening up again, where, where actually they're, they're able to do some of the stuff that they were used to be able to do. Sound familiar? In any way shape, or will not say that what we had was a moment of, uh, of punishment. But Inside of these moments, and, and a lot of the time throughout the biblical story, God will send these people the prophets, who in many ways are literally his mouthpiece. That's kind of what prophecy in the Bible is about. It's being the mouthpiece of God. And, and a lot of the time, they will speak about the future. That idea of prophecy is something in the future. But other times, they'll, they'll speak a challenge. They'll speak a warning. Or they might speak something that drives straight to the heart of what's actually going on. And so in one of these moments, a guy called Isaiah um, comes along to Israel when they're just kind of reestablishing their ways of worshiping, their ways of of practicing their faith in a lot of ways, Um, and he says this, well, God says this, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression or their sin, to the house of Jacob their sins, they might seek me daily. They might delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, and they didn't actually forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. But they ask, why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? God says, behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure, and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person actually to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes, i.e. mourn and repent under him? Will you call that a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rearguard. Then shall you call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as in the noonday, i.e. bright and full of sun. And the Lord will guide you continually. He will satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters will not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You will raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and instead call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going about your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then shall you take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's fast forward a couple of, a couple of years. So about 500 years on, there's been a 400-year window of silence where, where it's kind of just felt like, again, God has been silent. It's felt like, again, things are going wrong. The Romans have come. They've oppressed God's people again. They've, they've been stopped from doing all the things that they thought actually God had opened up, the promises they were receiving. They, they see actually this isn't happening. But they have this hope, this idea that one day there there would be this saviour king, the Messiah who would come and and for a lot of them they think this was kind of someone who would be kind of a a victorious general, who would would triumphantly come and lead the way through And, and in many ways Israel who were oppressed would then effectively kind of be the oppressors. They would be the ones in the power situation. And so again, 500 years on, a prophet arises. Um. Jesus of Nazareth has come onto the scene. Now, in many ways, he's not done that much at this moment in time, other than a fairly famous birth story. But to be honest, not many people know about that. He's not done all the things that you might hurt here around church. He's just a carpenter's son. And so what's been happening is that this guy called John the Baptist, who's actually Jesus' cousin, has been, been an equally a prophet and been saying, actually, maybe just maybe the Savior is coming. Maybe just maybe the Messiah is here. Prepare yourself, make way. Jesus has come and he's met John and he's being baptized. And in that moment, the heavens have been torn open. The spirit goes down like a dove and Yahweh himself would say, this is my beloved son. In him I'm well pleased. Off the back of that, Jesus is kind of led out into the wilderness for 40 days, a picture of of Israel themselves being in the desert for 40 years. And he's come back ready, prepared, on a mission. Now, as a good Jew, what does he do on the Sabbath day? He goes to synagogue. Let's pick up the story in Luke 4. As was his custom, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now Luke, who's who's carrying on this account, who's who's remembering these eyewitness accounts, goes on to say actually what Jesus does afterwards is literally a fulfillment of that. The, the next thing is that he goes and finds a, a guy who has been, been, uh, who has been struck by a demon for, for much of his life and he literally sets him free. You start to see that Jesus goes to people who are blind and he, and he opens their eyes. He goes to people on the social edges, the social outcasts, and he lifts them up. He restores, he, he rebuilds this relationship. He literally does this thing. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he appointed me with good news. which came liberty. Justice, mercy. Let's follow on a little bit further. A couple of years later, Jesus has has done all these wonderful things, but he's also been killed. But then, as you might be aware, he he raises is risen from the dead, and he he is um and then so as a result, he then commissions his commissions his followers, his disciples, his church, his bride, to go and represent him to all the nations of the earth. And they start doing this. They, they go, they, they, um, they, they start to build their congregations. They, they're kind of growing rapidly outwards, taking this news of Jesus wherever they are. There are moments though inside of that where they realize that maybe they're not getting it right. There's a moment in Acts where, where the early church is, is kind of recognizing that actually there are people inside of their church themselves, a whole a bunch of Greek widows, who aren't being looked after as they should be. So what do they do? They look after them. They serve them. They see a moment of injustice and they do it. But particularly, there's, there's one person in particular I'd want us to focus on. A guy called Paul who, who until this point, has been starting to proclaim the news to Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, so a, a diverse range of people who are just not Jewish in their ethnicity. And, and this has caused a bit of controversy. Um, that kind of a bunch of the Jewish Christians are kind of going, what are you doing? Like, this isn't okay. Like, we shouldn't be doing this. And, and so there's this big meeting, it's called the Jerusalem Council, where basically they're deciding whether or not Gentiles are allowed in the church. And so for us as Gentiles, a lot of us in the room, i.e. we're not Jewish, this is quite an important moment. And by the grace of God and the lead of the Holy Spirit, we are invited in, praise the Lord. Um, but, but there's this moment where they kind of commission Paul as a result of it, in terms of what his mission is to be about. Let's hear from Paul himself in Galatians 2. When James and Cephas and John, so James, Peter, and John, he seemed to be pillars, i.e. the leaders, um, saw the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they go to the circumcised, the Jewish. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was most eager to do. Now I wonder what your response is to, to all of those passages. The reason for sharing all of them is, is in many ways to hook into what the Bible Project was saying. Is that throughout his history, if throughout his history, God's people have been charged and commissioned with, with doing this thing of justice to the world around them. That it's not this kind of tag on to, to anything else. That it is actually something that is a reflection of the very heart of God himself. He deeply cares for the poor. He deeply cares for the hurting. He deeply cares for the broken, the marginalized, and the vulnerable. And, and that Isaiah 58 passage that we read at the very start was, yes, spoken 2,500 years ago, but actually was also spoken over us as a church some 40-odd years ago. Now, we're in this, we're in this series of reading in the wells, and I think it's fair to say I'm looking at James as I say this, um, that Probably by the elder's own admission, this topic of justice, this this well of justice, in many ways, has probably been one that's been shallowery dug at times. Um, This isn't to say that that, uh, that the church has has not has not served and met the needs both individually in people but also on project-wise. There have been people who have faithfully loved and faithfully served um, so many in our community for so many years. There's been f- the food bank, there's been Love Bexy, there's been um, winter night shelters, there's been debt advice services, there, and then individual actions over and over and over again inside of this. So please don't hear me say that for some reason that this is something entirely new and we're all idiots basically. But I can't help but, but read those passages and not have a level where maybe God will challenge us again with it. Let's go back to Isaiah 58. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps, the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke, every chain? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. You see, God's heart is fundamentally for those who are lost, those who are hurting, those who are broken. Time and time again, he, he has this particular heart, this can particular burden, this particular anger in a lot of ways. When the poor are in some way being looked out. We, we heard it in the video that this kind of it's called the trifecta of the vulnerable, the, the, uh, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner who are so often in Israel's time oppressed because they had no rights. And when they're oppressed, God time and time says no. This is not okay, this is not on. There is an anger and a holy fire inside of God at injustice. When he, when he sees people caught up in, in abusive situations, when he sees people caught up in, in systemic injustice, when he sees people who are stuck in long-term illness and ill health, his heart burns inside of it because that is not the way that things are meant to be. And, and in, in all of that, he challenges his people. He does. Another bit of Isaiah, Isaiah 1, he says this. What makes you think... I want your sacrifices. I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Instead, what is the type of worship that God is looking for? Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Or perhaps another form, Micah 6 eight. He has taught you, o Israel, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I think it's important to acknowledge that, that in a lot of ways these verses do carry a genuine challenge and I won't lie and say that I'm not challenged by this. That, that I, I look at them and, and I think about maybe how sometimes I, I maybe kind of hide a little bit behind kind of the, the apparent kind of holiness and piety and good acts of worship that I'm doing when actually God will be saying, how's your heart? Has it become hardened? Has it become uncompassionate? do you love in the way that Christ himself would love? Even in the last week, to be honest, in, in preparing this, I mean, I'm reading this stuff, like this surely should be in somehow in my head. I had a moment where the spirit was like, you better repent right now. I was, I was just up in central London last weekend and um, just walking around and, 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 and there was a homeless guy um, just, just by a chief station and, and he caught my eye, um, fully like locked in sort of thing and and just started to strike up a conversation, tried to start a conversation with me. And what did I do? I did the Pharisee and the Good Samaritan story and just walked on by. And that moment, the was kicked and was like, let's remember. Let's remember. But I think, as well as, and what we need to hear inside of this, and, and James has so helpfully he said this a number of times, is that in the, inside of the Bible, every warning is an invitation, every challenge is an opportunity. And so, so please do not hear this as a moment of condemnation. Instead, hear this, perhaps sometimes, yes, as a conviction moment, but actually hear this as well as an invitation from our Heavenly Father to, to understand more of who He is, to actually have a fuller understanding of the gospel in itself, to, to, be, to be called to be the people who truly reflect His own heart to, to the people in our neighborhoods and our streets and the areas around us. Ultimately, this this message of justice is a message of hope and of help. It is one where actually we, we hook into a story where God set the earth in motion in a way where everyone was equal, where everyone was a fellow image bearer, worthy of dignity, worthy of honor, worthy of respect. But it also ends with Christ himself coming back to restore all things, to remake creation in the way where it will never again be troubled by injustice. You see, the end of the story in Revelation 21 is that God himself picks up every ounce of abuse, every ounce of injustice, every ounce of ill health, every ounce of mental illness, every ounce of structural racism and any other injustice and literally picks it up and casts it out of the heavenly city. Never again to plight humanity again. It is the moment in Revelation 21 where it says he will wipe away every tear. That ultimately is the good news of the gospel, is that help has come, hope has arrived, and so now we, as, as Christ's ambassadors on the earth, represent him and take him to, to the people around us, that actually we, we hear this fact that God, God is a God of justice and we're encouraged and we're emboldened by it because of the simple matter that God cares and God is for us and he is for the people in our community. I wonder what it would look like if if, if as, as we as the people of God um, just just truly reflected Christ in the communities around us. There, there are what, some 500, 600 odd people inside a new community you call at home. 500, 600 people who, who are Jesus to the world around them, going and taking justice, going and taking hope, going and taking healing and restoration. What could that look like other than transformation? Now, that might be big things. That might be challenging Big, big injustices, but it also just might be individual choices on a day-by-day moment. It might be those moments of actually remembering, as we, as we come across people, this is an image-bearer. They're made in the image of God, worthy of love, worthy of honor, worthy of respect. For, 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 I was thinking about it, for kind of thinking about the way in which, uh, I guess, we're, we're meeting here in, in this building in Sidcup. Sidcup in a lot of ways can, can be the sort of place where, where you can kind of look at it and, and think that actually things are all right in a lot of ways. Um, uh, it's relatively wealthy, relatively uh, doing it right. But actually, if you look a little bit behind the scenes, you start to see that there are needs here just as much as there are anywhere else. And I'm aware that inside this room, people will be living not just in Sidcup, but in areas like the Craze, in, in areas into Orpington, like all, all across the place. But there are things like the fact that um, I'm a social worker, work for Bexley Council, and I know that in terms of our front door service, we get over 1,200 contacts a month for families who are in need in one way, shape, or the other. Now, that doesn't mean that all of them are going to have social workers turn up at their door, but it maybe gives you a little bit of perspective of some of the needs. Even as I was doing my training, I... I, um, I remember being quite challenged and provoked by the fact that I was going into some houses within walking distance of this, of this building. And a lot of the time, these families, they, it, it was the sort of thing where, where the biggest thing that was needed there was just community. Just, just needing people around them who would love them and, and give them a bit of help and a bit of guidance. And it struck me and it provoked me as, as I would then walked past the church building to kind of think, would they walk past and think, here's a place of help? here's a place of hope now this isn't about the building hear that but but in terms of as we as the church as as Christ's body on earth representing something it it did provoke something inside of me just to just to kind of go hmm maybe maybe not I don't know there are other areas of, of injustice which, which perhaps kind of uh, are maybe just a bit more kind of in our mindset recently. I mean, I'm aware from talking with friends who are far wiser than I that the, the, the universities around us have, have a real problem with, with supporting students with mental health problems. That's a matter of justice. Supporting, serving, loving. This morning, um, over in Elton, we were just thinking a little bit about the fact that um, barely a month ago, there was um, the tragic, the tragic murder of Sabina Nessa just down the road in Kidbrook. If you don't know where that is, it's a couple of stops on the train. It's about fifteen minutes' drive. It's thought that two women every week are horrifically murdered at the hands of of current or ex partners. And, and that, that, that in itself is horrific, but then layered into that then are the, the countless numbers of, of instances of sexual violence, of domestic abuse, even the, the microaggressions of, of, of the sexism and, and actions of largely men in the streets and homes around us. That's not okay. God is angered by those. God will, see, will bring justice and we pray that that would happen for, for Sabina Nesser and her family. But he will also bring justice at the end of the day for all those which are not brought into the light in this life. The challenge with that is is in many ways a challenge to men uh, in terms of how we honoring, loving, respecting, valuing women as, as fellow image bearers inside of the church as sisters. It's a topic where it needs calling out on the big level and on the smaller level as well. Any sexism, any stupid comments even, need calling out as not okay because it all feeds into this wider thing. We, we heard in the video about how this, this, this matter for us as a church of diversity is also a, a, a matter of justice. Again, down the road in Eltham, there's a memorial to Stephen Lawrence who was, he was racially murdered back in 1993. In the last year, we've 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 seen the the pain and the, the the sorrow and and the anger in many ways that, that came with with the with the with the racial murders again of George Floyd and Brianna Taylor and and so many others God cares God hurts God is angry that this would happen And I can't help but, but then think that the call on us as, 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 as God's people is, t- is to point again to that picture of where we're going. If you've been around in your community, you will have heard it, but in Revelation 7, you, you get this moment where, where there is a picture of the church as every tribe, every nation, every tongue gathered around the throne, worshiping, glorifying God, diverse, beautiful, pure, How wonderful would it be if we truly can be a diverse and inclusive church as a pitch to the world around us of actually this thing of righteousness, right relationships in action. What would that say to the world around us about the the heart of God as a God of justice, as a God of compassion, as a God of mercy? You go into youth violence, you look at homelessness, you look at food poverty, you all, all of these things are happening in the communities around us and, and the wonderful, wonderful thing that we can say is that God cares, that God is involved there and that every step we take in trying to just pursue his heart, he's already a dozen further ahead of us, that he is for us as we've heard, that, 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 that he, he, he cares so deeply into all of this that, that his invitation is always just come, follow me. You know, the, the, the response to all of this in terms of a topic, in terms of God's heart is, is is not necessarily, right, we all need to go and sign up to one of the various projects that, that the church is running. For some people, it might be. It might be actually that there's something going on which you'd like to get involved with. Amazing, please, we'd love to chat to you about that. But also, I think it might be that, that what I've noticed both in myself and in friends is that God can lay particular burdens, particular passions into into people's hearts. And actually there's an invitation to please come and challenge the rest of us, come and inspire, come and encourage us to walk into this, this match of being God's people on mission together, pursuing justice. Please, 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 please. I think as well... um, I think uh, it's worth saying that I don't think the answer to all of this is suddenly saying that, right, as as church, we now need to do a whole bunch more stuff. And by that, I kind of mean like the staff and the leaders here doing a whole bunch more things. Actually... Again, if God is laying particular things inside of you or has laid things inside of you, there are are countless amazing organizations that work in the areas around us already who are far wiser, far more experienced and doing amazing things in supporting people in need and combating injustice. Do some research, have a look, see what's around and, and see whether you, a community, could get involved inside of that. But more than anything else, more, more, more than anything else, I think the response in many ways is to pray, Lord, start with me. Lord, Lord change my heart. Let me, let me in some way reflect you more and more to the people that I'm interacting with on a day-by-day basis. To, to go, God, you're a God of justice. You're also a God of mercy. Lord, let me be, be a person where as I receive mercy, let me be merciful. As I receive blessing, let me be a blessing. As I receive love, let me love others. Should we pray? Father, thank you for, um, well, thank you for you first and foremost. Thank you that, that you are a God of justice. Thank you that you, you care deeply and intimately about, about every struggle that is going on inside of this world. And your heart burns in those moments, but your heart is also one of hope and of help. Father, I, I, I can't help but look at, look at the words that you've spoken to your people time and time again and not be challenged by it. Not be, not be, not be, I have to ask myself questions as to have I missed something here? Have, have I been hardened? Have I been, been unloving in some way, shape, or form? But I thank you as well that there is always that invitation to draw a little nearer, to, to understand you more to reflect you more in our day-by-day lives. Thank you that your heart for us as your people is Me that we would look like Jesus. Those who, who are anointed to bring good news, those who proclaim liberty, those who, who, who bring freedom, those who raise up and restore just as we've been raised up and restored. Oh, Lord, help all of us as your people to, to truly know this, to truly get this and to truly work this out in, in, in word and deeds, that we not be afraid to, to, to get into the, into the mess alongside others and to work to, to lift up in the way that we've been seated in high places. Jesus, thank you that, that you go before us. Thank you that you... You're our model, you're our guide, and we know that your heart is kind, your heart is caring, and your heart ultimately is for us and for the world. And so we just pray, Lord, in, in this moment, help us. Help us to reflect you more. Help us to be a people who, who do seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God.